What if the code that you wrote could be statically analyzed to understand what infrastructure you need and the infrastructure would just spin itself up instead of you doing it. And then you, we would dynamically analyze it as it runs to optimize for performance or scale, whatever. I think that's where we're headed. Welcome to the DevTools FM podcast. This is a podcast about developer tools and the people who make them. I'm Andrew, and this is my co-host, Justin. Hey, everyone. Our guest today is Sean Wing, who's currently the head of developer experience at Temporal. Sean, it's great to have you on. Would you like to tell our guests a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. This is uh, it's an honor, and it's been a while since I podcasted, so it's great to be back on the airwaves virtually. Mm-hmm. I'm originally from Singapore. I had my first career in finance, and I changed over to tech in 2017-ish, but I was always coding as part of my job in finance. I just decided to become a full software engineer. And that's where I met Justin, I think in the Vue meetup scene. I don't know. We're just kind of active in in general. Yeah. Vue NYC, Spotify. Vue NYC. That was a fun time. Yeah. I think the New York scene really helped me get my career going. I was a software engineer at Two Sigma for a while. And then I joined Netlify, was with them from Series B to C. And then I joined Amazon during the pandemic, (laughs) lasted eight months, and joined Temporal because I thought it was so compelling that I gave up everything. It was a pretty sweet job at Amazon, but I think that ultimately I want to build for the little guy. And as much as I appreciated all the resources I had at Amazon, I think the the future is more exciting. It, It has more things that I could do. What were you working on at Amazon that you didn't quite want to work on once you saw Temporal? (laughs) (laughs) They're just different things. So... At Amazon, I was a developer advocate for AWS Amplify, which is essentially what I was doing at Netlify, but more of that, right? Netlify is essentially a CDN plus a build bot. And Amplify was that plus storage plus, you know, GraphQL plus PubSub, like just, it was a front end layer for the rest of the Amazon services. So that was all super interesting, but it was very serverless focused as well. And this is something I struggled with at Netlify. Essentially, if you talk about the Jamstack, or if you talk about front-end developers, you're essentially always talking about serverless all the time. And that's because that's the new hotness. It's very great. It's very good for vendors and it's also good for people starting and scaling from zero. The thing that I thought was always missing in in the ecosystem that I did not have a good answer for was long-running jobs, long-running services. And that eventually led me down the path of going to Temporal, which is essentially what Temporal has been doing for 15 years, give or take, depending on how you start counting with the founders working on this problem. Wow. Didn't know it had been going for that long. I'm pretty inept when it comes to Temporal. What exactly does Temporal do for you? Oh dear. Yeah, this is a fun question. (laughs) Temporal is a microservices orchestration platform. It's open source, written in Go. And essentially what it does is it helps you deal with between service boundaries, standardize all the infrastructure and the policies of retries, timeouts, heartbeats, anything like that, enabling you to send in signals, get queries, get data out, and just be able to coordinate anything from a data pipeline where you're going, you're like collecting data from multiple sources to infrastructure provisioning where you're sending out an API command and waiting for machines to spin up and down or 
anything like long running, like a background check where it's like machine to human to machine flows. Checker is one of our customers and literally one of the background checks can be, I'm sending a human to a courthouse and that can take forever. This technology was born at Uber, but the roots go back all the way to Amazon where our CEO was tech lead for Amazon SQS and Amazon Simple Workflow. But if you imagine an Uber ride, if you track an Uber journey from beginning to end, like literally someone requesting a ride and then you have to match them. So you send them to the driver matching service and then they, they pick you up and then they drop you off and then they send the emails, the, the tips, the receipts, whatever is involved in that long running transaction. Each of these teams, each of these jobs could be done by a different service and you need some way to orchestrate all of them to coordinate what happens when someone cancels halfway or something happens halfway uh, and to do, do everything that could go wrong, that you need some way of organizing all that logic. Imagine if you spread this out among a team of, I don't know, 200 engineers, and how would you have a way to coordinate all these things? This technology was born over, it was open source as, as a framework called Cadence, and then it got successful enough because it was picked up by the likes of Stripe and Netflix and Airbnb and Coinbase that they said, why not? go have a go at it and run a managed service. So essentially that's what Temporal is today. It's pretty cool. I was looking at Temporal and it reminds me a little bit of what serverless does for servers. Instead of focusing a lot on infrastructure, you focus on what is my application code for the response of this thing? Of course, it's somewhere. It's like serving some things. But if I I, kind of like business rule engines and, and workflow engines, and they often tend to be very, very complex. And it's either like a, a dedicated service. Maybe you have something like Sidekick or something that like just does background job processing. Or maybe you have an actual workflow engine, which can be more of like a code framework that you're wrapping around all the stuff that you're trying to coordinate. It, it can often be really gnarly. So looking into Temporal, it looks like it did a pretty good job of just abstracting to the function level. Hey, here's the thing that I sort of want to do and not having to faff around with all the other things. Is that a correct sort of uh, summation of that? (laughs) Yeah, it really depends. What makes Temporal very hard to pitch is that the pitch actually differs by what kind of engineer you are and what tools you're already familiar with. So you mentioned Sidekick, and that's a, a a class for a class of engineers that will immediately click. Are we a Sidekick competitor? Maybe, maybe not. You could use us as a Sidekick competitor. But for example, could you use Sidekick to say, execute this task and then for the next task, wait on another task being completed. And once the moment that other task completes, continue with this other, with this task. So that's a Saga pattern or depending on how you want to set it up, like a race condition pattern. And I don't think that's doable in Sidekick because Sidekick is meant for batch jobs. So it really depends on what you're, uh, asking for, but in my mind, this is a generic uh, run. Wait, this is a generic framework for handling asynchronous and or- orchestration around uh, across services. I'll throw in a couple others as well. So, what about observability? What about logging and tracking across uh, all these different events? You want to build that in from the get go, and that's what Temporal does as well. It uses event sourcing so that even if Temporal itself goes down, it, you can just bring it back up again, and it starts back where it left off. And I think that's a very important part of this system because essentially you're introducing a centralized dependency on every single part of your distributed system. And so you need to make sure that the centralized dependency is just extremely fault tolerant. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What is the sort of model for like how Temporal is hosted? Is it just a hosted service where you describe to it? Is it like a self-hosted service? What does it look like? Yeah, it's it's an open source framework. So you can host it yourself, especially if you are already running a Go 
system. It's essentially a cluster of four Go services. That's what it is eternally. And, and then it also requires a persistence layer. So we support Cassandra, MySQL, and Postgres, and an optional analytics layer using Elasticsearch. However, you deploy clusters, you can just deploy like manually or with some kind of infrastructure as code solution. We are not really opinionated on that. And that's what uh, we have like very large <laughs> users today not paying us a single cent and just using it as an open source project. So essentially what Temporal, the company's job is essentially to build the managed version of that, make it easy for people who don't want to manage those ops, but then also start to think about proprietary features that might be value added around the core open source. It's awesome that it's being built mostly out in public. Like I know one of the big problems with Basil is a lot of it's public, but not a lot of the really cool things that companies use to do it is public. So that the fact that Temporal is a open source first company is awesome. Yeah, I think it's important for adoption as well. Like people would just want to be able to look through all the source code. They want to run it locally in their Docker container. And I think that's how Descript actually uses us. Descript actually is a paying customer of ours. And it's one of our first uh, case studies from a paying customer. But I, when they tried us out, it was just an open source thing. And, and we have a Docker Compose. We have a Helm chart. People try out in all sorts of different ways just to get comfortable with the technology. And they're pretty sold by the time we start sales conversations. And that's pretty awesome. And I think that's the way that a lot of dev tools should be done. Not every dev tool. I think this is a point of contention, like how much value are you actually doing with uh, open sourcing your service as compared to just giving a really good free trial? That's an open debate, but we're on the side of open source right now. Building an open source business is hard. I think we've seen, especially looking at what's happened with Elasticsearch and the troubles that MongoDB had, it, it can be really hard to say, here, I'm going to open source my things and then I'm going to try to build some sort of Thing on top of this, licensing becomes especially important and how you like put that out into the world. So I'm always very strongly in favor of open source and finding a good open source model, but it does seem like a challenge. Yeah, it's not free either. We have to dedicate engineers to triage issues and PRs from the community. And if we don't do a good job, then people accuse us of being bad open source maintainers. Yes, it's free work that people are putting in, but usually they don't have any sense of the roadmap. They don't have the same priorities. Some of them are just have drive-by PRs. Like, there's a lot of maintenance weight associated with being open source. I think it's a hot topic, whether or not you should be MIT open source or you should use one of the other emerging licenses. Like I was very interested in the SSPL or the AGPL. I think Elastic went for AGPL and maybe Databricks or some of the others went for SSPL. And we are MIT licensed, meaning that Amazon could take it today at Hostat and we would have no say whatsoever. And I used to be a lot more worried than I am today. And that's because that the more you build these businesses and the more you understand the complexities of the different components, the more you see that actually just hosting the, the raw service isn't enough. And that's why MongoDB, even though Amazon, you know, is is hosting whatever, DocumentDB with MongoDB capability or whatever they call it. MongoDB is doing fine as a business. They're still a, what, $12 billion company. And that's a database company. So what's relevant about this being a database company is people want data to stay within Amazon, right? Data egress is charged, whereas data ingress is free for Amazon. That's a really interesting competitive advantage that Amazon gives itself. But somehow cloud companies are realizing that they can still fight it if they have a good enough offering that Amazon doesn't offer. And and at the end of the day, like it's not existential for Amazon to host any of these open source software. 
and it'll always be behind in some way in terms of the, the versioning or, or some kind of support. There's always ways in which the smaller company can compete with Amazon. At the same time, I think if Amazon hosts you or offers you, it's also recognition that people want you enough, that they that you are now officially one of the 200 or 300 officially supported services as Amazon. And I think that's a mark of pride. That's not too bad. Being a front-end developer, every time I have to try to configure or use any AWS service, I just feel lost. And I feel like these small, smaller companies really have the chance to get better DX. And I think that's what a lot of your current job is at Temporal, if I'm not, I'm not mistaken, is DX. Could you explain what exactly that means? Does that mean you're still a dev advocate? Or are you actually like looking at using the service and how to make that feel better for a developer? Yeah, managing dev advocates. Actually, that's part of one of the reasons why I was attracted away from Amazon, which is that Temporal was willing to offer me an expanded role, which is a combination of products, dev advocacy, docs, and SDK development. Whereas at AWS, I was just responsible for content. So it's a, it's an, it's a, ch it's a chance for me to step up. So yeah, dev experience is a very, <laughs> I think a lot of people are trying to crowd in on it and it depends where you are in the org chart. I have a fairly holistic view in the sense that, for example, at Netlify, I had the title of developer experience engineer, but I was actually mostly just a developer advocate, meaning that I was mainly producing content and not really contributing to the engineering effort or the product prioritization. That changed when Sarah Jasner came in to manage us. Uh, she actually dedicated one quarter of our time to engineering. So literally um, three months out of the, the year, you're taken out of the DevRel team and put into an engineering team. Uh, and then helps dev advocates be more sympathetic to engineers. And just also, I think when you've built the feature that you're talking about, you just have a lot more authority on the topic than if you're just like regurgitating docs. And I think that's a very positive effort. But personally for me, I take it more expansively in two ways. One is uh, developer exceptions is what I call it. I have a blog post called developer exception engineering because a lot of the times I think developer advocates talk about free tier, the happy path, the like how to get started. And yeah, that's good for 10 minutes, but then like, for the poor developer who like bought the spiel is now stuck with it for two years and is running into all the bugs and the ugly stuff that it's not nice to say on camera <laughs> and developer relations or developer advocates, people typically wash their hands off of that. And they say, it's not their job. It's part of products, part of engineering. I'm sorry. I didn't know the building was so high. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, we had this feature. It's not as great as other options, but I can't really say that. Stuff like that, that's like the impolite stuff. I wish people were just more upfront about it because engineers can deal with that, can deal with imperfections. But I think a lot of developer tools and developer engineers, the developer relations people are very insecure. So they, they feel the need to be all things to be all, to all people. They feel the need to say, our thing is great. Everyone else is also great, but our thing is greater. <laughs> and, and that's all, all the other stuff while also not having any competition. It's just a very duplicitous mindset, which I don't like. We should just talk like we would to our friends. And a lot of the times the companies who employ <laughs> the zero probation people are not comfortable with that either. It's a really interesting push and pull between that. I'm on the side of trying to be more honest and saying we do not do all these things. And in fact, uh, actually last, yesterday I pushed a FAQ to our, to our landing page saying what we don't do. We don't do real time. We don't do streaming. We don't do visual development. And I think it's important to, to lay those out as much as possible. The second part of developer experience, which I really am appreciating more and more is community. So instead of you being the single source of truth on content, uh, you produce all the events, you go and 
do all the talks? How can you enable users to talk to each other? How can you enable users to hire each other? How can you enable your fellow engineers, your coworkers to talk on behalf of the company with your help instead of you doing it? And that's people I'm way more interested in real engineers, air quotes, doing the talking than people who are paid shows. So I really like to explore those things. And I think that the developer experience industry is is coming towards this point of view more and more. I really resonate with the whole like getting sold the whole thing, but not the drawbacks. I have a long running service called kickback.tv, which is basically like a fancy RSS reader for music videos. And a few years back, I got sold the whole serverless thing. And I was like, oh, it's so good. It makes all these things better. And now I'm sitting here with some pretty high bills because I run lots and lots of serverless functions. And I wasn't sold the drawbacks, like local development's harder or connecting to databases can be really hard. And it's something you have to think about, or you might have not really have to think about that with a tr- traditional server. So I definitely like the honesty. Yeah, I, I, I want to say like a lot of it is not the developer advocate's fault as well, because if they are too honest, they get the nasty DM from their boss. So yeah, it's a struggle to always be comfortable with what we're saying publicly as a representative of the company. I I don't know. I think that it has to come from management. And so having someone like me set that example, I think helps the rest of the company be more open about, okay, here's where we are at. But despite all these flaws, here are the customers that really back us up. And here's why we think we, we solve the problem really well. It's also a lot about accountability and, and metrics, right? If you measure me, entirely based on how many views I get, how many signups I get, then that is what I will produce for you. But I will not say anything about the long-term experience uh, and the long-term relationship, which, which actually, if we screw that over in terms of trust, people will never trust you again. The metrics produce <laughs> the results. I, I forget what the, the quote is, like what gets measured gets managed, I guess. So if no one's looking after the long-term relationship or the long-term developer experience, then nobody cares about it. And that's very negative long-term. Yeah, for sure. And I think it says a lot about the company and the product too, if you're very open and honest, because some products like have big drawbacks, major trade-offs. And if you really get into those, people are like, oh, I don't know if I want to really use this, even if it's like manageable. So I think it even above and beyond goes to show that, hey, like this is, we have something that we're very confident in that we think can really hit these key areas really well. Yeah. Andrew, I wanted to respond to something that you said about setting up services. You're more of a product developer and you rely on platform engineers or infrastructure, whatever, you know, I don't know what your backend team is called, to give you the, the things to work with, right, to, to produce products. And that's fine. And a lot of the DevOps movement is about taking on that responsibility yourself by having all these familiar tooling. What, one of the pitches that we have at Temporal, which I want to try on you, is <laughs> we are reliability on Rails. And so this is the, the idea that, for example, Let's say you have a job to do that is passing data from service A to service B to service C. Usually you would have data, like data just like service A calls service B, service B calls service C. The problem with this is that if service B has some unreliable uptime, you then need to retry it. You need to persist that you have retried. You need to set a timer for the next retry. And these are all unique pieces of infrastructure that you as the service A maintainer now has to maintain. Same for service B to service C. So what if we could all centralize that into a centralized orchestrator service? And so service A calls the orchestrator and orchestrator calls B calls back to the orchestrator, orchestrator calls C again. Orchestrator logs everything, has the timers and the persistence and all the other paraphernalia that you need for all this reliability stuff. So that you as a service A maintainer, you don't have to provision those things. 
you would just call the centralized service that does that stuff. So that's what I think about this. I've been actually working on a blog post before this call talking about this, which is essentially self-provisioning infrastructure. What if the code that you wrote could be statically analyzed to understand what infrastructure you need and the infrastructure would just spin itself up instead of you doing it. And then you, we would dynamically analyze it as it runs to optimize for performance or scale, or whatever. I think that's where we're headed. And I wanted to pitch to Poral as part of that. The problem is that there's a lot of manual footwork right now. So Temporal doesn't auto scale. It requires people watching charts and graphs to scale it manually. But that's what we're eventually heading towards, the, some kind of self-provisioning infrastructure that where you as an application programmer, you just assume that your timers are there, you assume your queues are there or whatever, and you just code against that. The rest of it just takes care of itself. I, I already think uh, I might try to use Temporal to do my website that I just talked about. It sounds pretty interesting. And it's good to learn what my company is using so that I can be proficient in it too. Yeah, it's not suitable for website hosting. This is more about anything yeah. long running. And actually yeah. one of my blog posts was also about what is long running, right? The typical AWS Lambda timeout is three seconds, but even three seconds for an API request is actually pretty long. They probably would have returned it sooner. And you, and you can extend an AWS Lambda job to 15 minutes if you want to. Uh, and my, my former employer Nellify also exposed that as called background functions. But what is the point of chunking up your job into arbitrary 15 minute cutoffs. It's just a weird abstraction that's like neither here nor there. What you really want is, is something that can just more generically handle long running jobs. And I think that's what uh, Temporal provides. And when you say long running, does it have to ever end? What if you had an infinite workflow uh, that just represented the total relationship over the lifetime of you and your customer? So that then we can get into entity or actor modeling. And that's something that we could be used for as well. I, I don't know if Justin has experienced that before with uh, Elixir stuff, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. And all of these are really hard problems, generally. It just, I mean, like you are just saying, the retries, having the confidence that like something can call some other thing in some order and like the, the rules around those things get really, really gnarly, really, really fast. And, yeah, I like the analogy yeah. of, do you know the difference between, I think it's HTTP and TCP. Maybe it's TCP and IP. I'm actually not sure which layer I'm talking about, but one layer takes care of retries. Right. If you send data over the internet to someone else, it actually takes care of like all the nodes in between. And if one of the packages failed to deliver, they actually take care of retransmission. But when you send the HTTP like data frame, you just send it as one big chunk of text. You don't actually care about breaking it up or retrying or anything like that. It's just understood that it's part of the protocol. So that's the analogy that I kind of take to how you should orchestrate between services and systems as well. Like you should just care about getting all this data through and let some different plane of retry or reliability layer handle the retries and the transmission between them. Yeah, for sure. That's your, yeah, I think the TCP being the layer that like helps you retry, HTTP being your higher level where you're just like, I'm just sending this message and I am I'm yeah. relatively confident that it's either all going to get there or it's yeah. going to fail. Yeah. Yeah, transactional guarantees is also pretty important to us. That's what people tend to get wrong the most when doing this themselves. We like to say that our competition is not Apache Airflow. It's not AWS Dev Functions. It's not a sidekick. It's people doing it themselves with their own cron jobs, with their own database state machine and implicit schema thing in there. And then just wiring it up with duct tape, essentially. So we have to convince people that they have this problem and then expose them to the class of solutions of which we are one of them and then expose them to why we think we are a pretty good solution among the competitors. This is a random question, but I was looking at the site and I noticed you had there's like at least four examples on there right now, Go, TypeScript, PHP, and Java. Do you have any, any other thoughts on expanding the sort of SDK scope? Yeah. <laughs> 
So you can imagine it, there is demand from all these users who are cool code in other languages. And we're just going to go by popularity order. So you can guess the roadmap. Pretty much the only reason we have a PHP SDK, and that's the one that kind of sticks out to people. The, the reason we have that is because Laravel, the primary framework, um, adopted us as, as one of the solutions for long-running jobs. We prioritize that. We have an agency that helps us with the maintenance of the PHP SDK. Apart from that, Go and Java with the house languages at Uber. TypeScript is the upcoming one, obviously, because JavaScript is the biggest ecosystem. Python is next. And then we have a long list like .NET, Ruby. And I think even people are interested in Rust at Swift and Haskell. These have all been separate suggestions. I work with the SDK team in planning all these things. It's not just about rolling out individual SDKs, but also understanding how we can maintain all of them together and <laughs> document them as well. It's a, a big task. I, I've never been in a job where I had to worry about these kinds of things. But now that I am, I, I have a lot more appreciation from people who maintain docs and SDKs and keep them all in sync. And that's how I view my job as developer experience. Okay, so uh, switching gears a little bit, you have an unconventional start into the coding industry, or maybe I'm, I'm mistaken, but you started out in finance and now you're head of developer experience at a tech startup. So did you start out as like a, a CS grad and just moved into finance or were you like a finance guy that found a love for coding and then eventually just completely changed career paths? Yeah, pretty much the second one. So nice. I geared since high school, I heard about hedge fund managers and I was like, these <laughs> people sound awesome. They sound like masters of the universe. I want to be one of them. And I pretty much geared my entire career around that. So I went to business school. I uh, graduated with a risk, like, yeah, I did not graduate with a finance degree. I graduated with a risk management degree. That's a different story. I did investment banking and in, sorry, I did sales and trading in the investment bank. Then I switched over and finally got to a, a hedge funds trading technology stocks. And then I discovered I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like the people. I didn't like the work and I wasn't great at it. Like I, this combination will just kill your career at aspirations. I think uh, a lot of times you, you'll join an industry like finance where like you have 15, 16 hour days and it's super high stress. Uh, I was sleeping under the desk a, a couple of times and you don't join an industry like that to be average. And I worked my butt off for two years and I came in like kind of mid middling in the analyst rankings in my firm. And I looked at myself and I looked at the top performers and I was like, I'm, I'm not them. Either that or they're doing something illegal, whatever it is. I'm not them. I've tried my, my hardest and I don't think I'm, I'm, this is it. In the meantime, I was always coding as part of my job. And this is something that is maybe not so obvious to people who are traditional software engineers, but everyone from finance will relate to this. As the young kid on the desk, you're given all the IT related tasks. This is just a common thing. Like all the older people will be like, hey, I, I don't know, spreadsheet, go figure it out. So that's how I got into VBA on Excel. Uh, and then once VBA stopped scaling, I went into Python to do number crunching. And once Python stopped scaling, I went into Haskell for option and derivatives modeling. And so I was coding all these production applications without really knowing anything about it. I discovered my old VBA utility library that was 4,000 lines of non-source controlled, non-tested code that was running the interest rate pricing sheet of uh, a giant bank. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's fun, but, and eventually I discovered that I was good at that. And not only that, I think there's something lasting about software that doesn't last in finance. Like in finance, I'm only as good as my last trade. If I made some money or lost some money in my previous trade, it doesn't matter. Now the next trade has to be as good or better, especially if I lost money, I have to do twice as good to make up for the money that I lost. Whereas in software, I think there's a cumulative advantage towards the thing that you build, helping you in, in the next thing that you build. 
obviously there's bit rot in software, but it's definitely more durable than in finance. So I was very drawn to that. So I, I decided to try to make user interfaces. I would, I would say the other thing about going from a number crunching background, I was doing a lot of stuff in Python and Haskell. Why I moved from that to front end, which seems like a lower value industry, is because I realized I was the bottleneck for my work. I was what they call the spreadsheet monkey. Whenever I, I needed to rerun an analysis, people would just tell me what they wanted and then I, I would have to code that in and then run the reports and then give it back to them. It's only when you build a user interface that you free up other people to just use your program as is and, and then you decouple your output or your impacts from your time. And so I was very interested in user interfaces and I went into JavaScript. And guess what? Of, out of all the languages I've ever learned, JavaScript's the hardest, most, mostly because of the stupid module system <laughs> and all the incompatibilities between them. This is back in 2015-ish. 2016. And there's a lot of uh, debate over which framework, which module library, like this one doesn't work with the other thing. Like, oh, what about Meteor? There's all these other small little ecosystems. And as an outsider coming in, it's super confusing. It's obvious to someone who's been around for a while. It's obvious to me now. But for me back then, like I needed help. So I actually enrolled myself in a JavaScript bootcamp just to get help. And that was my start date. That's awesome. A lot of the the developers I was inspired by early in my career have the same thing. One who's working at a chemical plant as a chemical engineer, and he just found that coding his Excel spreadsheets was a lot more fun than actually doing his job, and then eventually became a UI developer. So it's like very common yeah. career path. Did working in finance influence how you approach programming? Did that industry shape how you've approached your career after it? Yeah, definitely. I view frameworks and languages as investments. And these are not only, you're not just investing your money, you're actually investing your time, which you have the least amount of. So you have to be really careful about it. You have to evaluate these things as you would a traditional investment that's highly illiquid that you can't just sell if you change your mind. So I definitely view it like that. And I, I view frameworks, libraries, people, companies, uh, whatever it is in a more generic, would I invest in this thing mindset? I'm not saying I'm good at it because if I was, I'd probably be VC, but I'm definitely thinking about it constantly because no matter what, you don't have a choice. You're, that's what you're doing. Even though, even if you don't think you're good at it, that's what you're doing with your life. I definitely view it in a tick strategy mindset of, do I think that this technology is about to take off? Um, what I phrase this as is essentially I'm specializing my career in helping developer tools companies cross the chasm from early adopters to the or the majority and the late majority and understanding the preconditions and understanding the strategies to take people across the chasm. I think it's for people who are not familiar with that book that the assertion is that there's a huge gap. And that's why it's called the chasm between early adopters and the early majority. And there is a lot of work that needs to be done to fill in that gap, but also it's fairly predictable if you've seen it a couple of times. And that's what I've done. That's what I'm doing with the Svelte Society. That's what I did with React and TypeScript before Svelte, but then also what I'm doing now with Temporal. And I think that if you can practice and hone this skill, predict <laughs> to some extent the technologies that will happen next for, I think you can do pretty well. well I guess I, I had the, the pleasure of meeting you a little bit earlier in your journey. And since then, you've done a lot of stuff in a relative short period of time. You do a lot of writing, you do a lot of speaking, you're obviously a, a big Twitter personality. How did you, how did that building that presence happen? Was this something that maybe the finance world built you up for, you had to sort of prepare for this, or is this something that you discovered along the way? Yeah. What did, how did that process happen? I'd say it's the opposite of what finance built me up for. A lot of actually my playbook is doing exactly the opposite of what I did in the finance world. Finance is very zero sum. If your competitor knows something, it's automatically less valuable. Whereas 
tech is positive sum. If I can share my code with my competitors as open source code, we can both benefit if this is this becomes more of an open source accepted standard or protocol. It just trickles down a lot. Some of the, my best work, my best intellectual output, I wrote as my trade analysis or my stock pitch for my boss. And it's sitting somewhere in a mailbox. And he's, he's told me like, this is some of the best analysis I've ever read. It's great, but now it no longer belongs to me. I don't have it anymore. I don't even remember. I just, I remember the vague shape of it, but it's lost forever. And so when I came to the tech, I resolved to essentially never do that again, to put everything in the open, to think in public and to share what I know and try to grow as part of that and take advantage of the fundamentally op open source and positive some nature of the tech industry. And I think that just works really well if you just keep at it. I think a lot of people start and they're inspired when they, when they hear my story and they, they start doing it and then they don't see initial success and they get discouraged. And there are two things I would say to that. One is obviously th these things compound and take time. Uh, and two is you need to talk about things that interest other people, not just yourself. <laughs> so there needs to be some sense of empathy. The most frequent way I encourage people to do that is to pick up what they put, what others put down. Essentially, that's just the, the term of the essay that I wrote about this topic. Like you're guaranteed feedback if you give feedback. It's a two-way relationship rather than just like you appear on the scene and you start broadcasting these thoughts and people are supposed to know they're not. Like no, no one inherently cares about what you have to say, but they have to, they, they care about what you think about what they've done. And that's a really good starting point. And if you start being a collaborator and a, and a friend, you start to become a peer of them. And eventually you may just diverge. Like I've significantly diverged from my mentors in the React ecosystem. And we have mutual respect, but we no longer, like I no longer treat every word that they say as gospel because I've developed enough of my own opinion that I don't need that anymore. That's the natural progression. And I think I didn't come up with this strategy from scratch. I credit a lot of it to Kelsey Hightower from Google, who gave me the idea of learning in public. And then I just ran with it. I wrote an essay one afternoon that got super viral. That became a book, which I wrote last year. It's called the Coding Career Handbook. And that's just become this whole movement that is older than me and will last beyond me that I've been very fortunate to be a part of. Yeah, the learn in public stuff is just a, a great way to live by. You're very right in that it doesn't feel like it's working at first, but it's just that cumulative <laughs> overtime effort. Like just the power of Twitter and being able to like put out your thoughts and trickle your thoughts out and get opinions back is just such a great starting place. Yeah, I will say, I will say it pisses people off sometimes because if you do get any sort of voice, any sort of, and any writing is persuasive, authoritative, and you're wrong, which you will be, if you're pushing yourself at all, you will be wrong. People are like, we should put five paragraphs of disclaimer saying you're not an expert before you say your wrong opinions. Um, <laughs> and people get very pissed off because with great platform comes great responsibility. <laughs> and, and you should have some idea of, you should put it, you should do the work. Essentially, you should do your homework before you spot off, uh, especially if people start listening to you. But I always reserve the right to be wrong. I always respect my reader enough to say you understand that all this is like just one person's opinion you understand that i don't know everything let's have a mature discussion instead of saying i'm not the freaking encyclopedia or anything i'm just like this is what i think today and i mean i reserve the right to change my mind i reserve the right to be wrong and i reserve my right to completely disagree with you even though you have 20 years of high level programming experience all of which you will run into and that's the the, the, the way of the world and i think a lot about power dynamics and i think a lot about politics as well coming into tech um it starts to blend all together because ultimately you're dealing with a potentially unlimited number of developers and humans thinking about what, what you do. I don't know. It's one of those things that is, is uncomfortable because I've been seriously misinterpreted 
by people I respect. And that's, that's never a good feeling. But you got to just like, the only thing that you could count on is that you can build a reputation of sincere, authentic learning in public. And people, as long as people can vouch for where you're coming from, you're like you're not malicious, like you're good intent. You may be wrong-headed, but you're good intent. People can forgive a lot. Yeah. I think there's a lot of lessons to learn about just like development in general, because I mean, tech in particular is, as all things are, I guess, a fundamental human endeavor. You can have the most polished tech skills possible and still struggle to build good products because it takes it almost takes politics. It takes people to build yeah. products. And it like politics is a natural part of that. Not just politics, but like human interaction and communication and figuring out how to do all this stuff. Building a community or being a voice in a community is different in a way than like building a product or being a leader at a team. But th there's some fundamental crossover there. I had a great mentor earlier in my career, a Trip Schumach, who, who taught me a lot about what it means to yield influence without authority and how to navigate an environment where politics are very real and have a lot of large consequences and learning how to pick your battles and all that stuff and generally becomes a good life lesson and hopefully instills a little bit of humility and to learn that there's a lot of people with a lot of skin in the game and we just have to sort of learn how to navigate and live together but yeah i think that point though of trying to be authentic just being open trying to be uh, humble about what you're doing can really go a long way yeah i i think it's it's one of those things where i think it's anti-fragile so for example, if, if you try to always do maximum amounts of research and just be absolutely 100% correct, that's a very fragile position to be in because it just takes one mistake to, to wreck your reputation. Whereas if you have a brand of just, I can't be wrong, but uh, the, the one promise I make to you is I'll learn from it and I'll try to improve every day. That's an anti-fragile thing because your brand is imperfection. <laughs> so I do like that. I, I just want to articulate, make it okay for, for people who are thinking about this and want a positive role model for how to pursue this. To see that happening, I'm not saying the other path is not valid. This has really worked for me. I've, and I've only done this for four years, which is also part, partially what blows my mind to the point where I got my last three jobs off of Twitter. I was pitched by my boss, like a formal slide deck on why I should quit Amazon to join Temporal. And uh, I think the, the learning public stuff is, is just like really ongoing. Like I've, if I've only done this for four years, like what happens if I do it for 40 years? And I, I think it's a really positive thing in, in tech that is so well received as well. So I definitely am very grateful that I, I know people like you that are supportive of, of this kind of stuff. Cool. Shall we go to tool tips? My first tool tip of the day is Prisma. I haven't had uh, the most opportunity to use it, but as I go more and more down my full stack engineer path, I see a tool like this becoming more and more useful. The thing that's not like readily apparent when you start working with like databases at a production scale is how the data is modeled. Like the way I've always dealt with any type of database, I don't really have a model. There's some tables and those have the model in there somewhere. And what I really like about Prisma is it has these automatic data migrations where you just, you define your API or even generate what your database is from your database. And then you get this nice model that you can play with. And then once you have that model, you can have types for it. And which I'm a huge proponent of TypeScript and just being able to not have to write uh, strings of SQL is such a huge boon to productivity. So I hope I can use this more in the future. They are friends, uh, Johannes and Nick, and I, I forget who else I, I know over there. And I will take credit for 
pushing them towards the ORM branding. So they used to say that they were not an ORM because they were doing all these other things. And I was like, yeah, but people aren't there yet. You need to catch them with the idea that you're a super ORM and then people can go further into why you're actually not an ORM at all. There's always a little bit of, we are this in the short run, but then we're this other thing in the long run. When it comes to dev tools, there's the near-term vision and the long-term vision. But I think the near-term vision is really playing out for Prisma. Like uh, you should see a lot of the meta frameworks that are coming out like Redwood JS and Blitz.js, they all use Prisma as the ORM layer. And I think that's pretty positive. They've definitely done a good job there of solving the getting up and running uh, use case for those people. What I think is going to be a struggle to articulate in the long run is why this ORM versus the native ORM of the database that you are going to use anyway. Basically, how often do you switch databases? Probably not very often. What if you just were really good at one database and you use the dedicated ORM for that database, like Postgres and you know, SQLize or whatever, why do you need all the other stuff? So that's the real question. I will say that they've done a really good job in their tooling, especially in, so they have a lot of really interesting autocomplete for their VS Code tooling. So it'll build out things in the right way, being able to pull in, observe your database and figure out like what ta- what tables exist and what relationships and bring that back into your schema is pretty interesting. I've used this for a few projects. And while you're right, switching between databases isn't a thing that you do a terribly lot, like being able to go back and forth between SQLite for just like local development and then Postgres for like production stuff can be interesting sometimes. The one caveat here, the one thing that you'll hit, which I have, is that databases are different. Not all the data types are represented the same and Prisma can't, you know, do anything about that. So there you will run into fundamental limitations where it's, oh, sorry, this data type doesn't exist in SQLite. Just, it's not there, so you can't do this thing. I, I actually hit that like last week when I was working on a PR to an open source project that used Prisma. So I was like, ah, oh, well, wanted to replicate a local database, but I can't because of that. So. It's a most common denominator of the feature set of all the databases. That's interesting. <laughs> well, it's it's not necessarily, it's not a lowest common denominator. Generally, you can use more broader feature sets, but like they'll only be available on certain databases. So yeah it will eliminate your ability to switch over between other things. And and the only example I have in my mind firmly is this issue where like some data types that are available in Postgres are definitely not available in SQLite. So it's, there are certain things that you can create in your schema that close the door to be able to switch. I'll, I'll say one of the weird ones here is that it supports MongoDB, whereas everything else is SQL. So what abstraction costs or what costs are you paying because you're trying to be generic? If you're designing the Prisma SDL, or whatever the, the DSL is, to be generic across NoSQL and SQL. That's interesting. There's got to be some cost there. I don't know what it is, but it's an interesting choice. Yep. It's a good tool, though. So this is a thing that I randomly stumbled upon this week. It, it's How do I even describe this? It's a sort of unified plugin system, as the README says. It's called Unplugin. It's by Anthony Fu, I think. He's done a lot of work in the Vue ecosystem in particular. But essentially what this thing allows you to do is create a plugin that is compatible across Vite, across Rollup, across Vite, Vite, 
Vite, Rollup, and Webpack all in one. So you sort of write this plugin one time, and it can be consumed by multiple different build systems. So this sort of gets your maximum value for your plugins in the open source ecosystem. I thought it was a really, really clever bit of tool building. The abstractions leak a little bit, so there are things that you might have to handle on a platform level. But I mean... Broadly, that's okay. If you're like, hey, I really want to hit maximum range with this plugin extension. It's a great start to a meta plugin framework, if you will. Interesting. So they have to make a unified language for plugins and then split that out into the separate ecosystems. That seems like a challenge. <laughs> yep. Yep. Fundamentally, most of these build tools are doing a similar thing under the hood. Most of them just have this transform function. They like take in code and they put out code. And there's like other sort of trappings on top of that. And of course, it's a leak abstraction because you have to be aware of some sort of like what the platforms do. But if you're already going to be supporting multiple build systems, now you can just do it a little bit more easily in one repo. It's, this is still early. I think you just created this like a few weeks ago. So Akiflow is is not a developer tool so much as a knowledge worker tool. And as particularly as I guess I take more meetings these days and I take a lot of asynchronous tasks, I need a way to store them. So I need essentially the human equivalent of Temporal to never drop tasks. <laughs> and so Akiflow is uh, something I found recently because one of my uh, followers suggested it. And I've been trying it out. It's really good. Essentially, like you want your to-do list to always coexist alongside of your calendar. And you want to book time with yourself to execute on your to-do list or you'll never finish your to-do list. So you need a program that just inherently has that. So the popular name for this is also called time block planning. And you might find similar people from the getting things done methodology or the Cal Newport. I think, I forget what, what his what his term for it is, but he also has a time block planner that he sells. I don't like it because it's a book, it's a physical form. So this is the software version of time block planning and it's paid software, but it's so far it's been really working out for me. So I noticed it has a lot of integrations. Do you have to use the integrations or can you use a tool? I use, I use the Google calendar and, and Slack and GitHub. Sorry, they don't have GitHub yet, but they, they will. But yeah, so far that's it. They are planning more, but I'm already pretty happy with what they have. Like literally, I just wanted my to-do list to coexist with my calendars. I have two calendars, my personal and my professional, and I need to keep all of them together because I'm one human. But I think that this has really just helped me organize and drop tasks less. Like literally for once, I'm not just append only to my to-do list. And then every now and then I declare to-do list bankruptcy, you know how that feels. You literally are just forced to go through and prioritize and make time in your day to do them. So you're spending less time on Hacker News and Twitter as well because you now don't have a random unscheduled time. You give every minute of your day a job to do. You may run over and that's fine, but at least you've at least tried to make progress on the tasks that you've prioritized for yourself. So yeah, every other system I've tried, like Microsoft to do like simple note-taking system hasn't worked for me. So I think like literally sticking it in the calendar so that no one else can book that time. This is your time with yourself to do that task that you promised you would do. I think that's the only way to do it, get stuff done. Yep. Pretty cool. So that's why your calendar's booked wall to wall <laughs> during the week. <laughs> Makes sense now. That's a smart way to get things done for sure. <laughs> Mine's one we've talked about already in past episodes, but get ES build wherever you can in your tool chain. It makes so many things better, whether it's from integrating it into your webpack builds to make things compile really quickly 
or as Justin shared a few weeks ago, using ES Build Register to make any of your Node scripts. TypeScript first is just so awesome. ES Build Register has changed the way I write Node scripts. Like I can actually write TypeScript now and not have any speed hit. Get ES Build in there. It, it's awesome to see what's happening with non-JS, JS tooling right now. Yeah, my essay or my thesis around this is, I call it the third age of JavaScript. <laughs> Meaning we're going back and rewriting the tools of the past 10 years in other languages, systems languages, especially if they have very hot paths like a build tool, they will be rewritten in a systems language. Maybe not Go, maybe Rust as well. So you see that Next.js just adopted SWC as their core, not ESBuild, whereas everyone else has been adopting ESBuild. But it's in inevitable because the, the speed demands are so great. And it turns out that people will learn these languages to contribute. The argument used to be that uh, you have to build JavaScript build tools in JavaScript so that people could contribute. But guess what? People don't actually contribute that much to these uh, core tools. And the cost that you pay, the cost that every user is paying far always the learning cost of the individual. Yeah, I broadly agree. I mean, it feels like we're definitely getting past the point of, hey, we'll just use this tool for every job and getting a better sense of what other languages in the ecosystem are capable of doing. And we have a lot more good alternatives to building things. Like, if you've never tried Go or you've never tried Rust or something like that, you can get into these things. And it's a world different than, in my opinion, getting into like C or getting into Java. I've done a bunch of production C and Java, and they have their own sort of constraints and their own learning systems. And the C ecosystem doesn't really have good there's no package manager, really. That's not a thing. Like dependency management is a whole thing. And, and getting into Java and you get into package management hell there, it's not easy by any means. You can do a lot with it. It's a huge ecosystem. But we have these sort of newer, fresher, more approachable languages that have a lot of power and that are really fast. And I feel like JavaScript filled that gap for a while and it was like fast enough that you could just build a lot of this complex tooling in Node. But as we have these higher sort of constraints and we want more out of our systems that like really gets us closer to that point. I'm all for it. I think, think it's going to be great. <laughs> I'll also mention that it's a side project of Figma's CTO who was just frustrated with our existing tooling and he was just like, screw it. I'm just going to build my own. And it was meant to be a proof of concept, but he's apparently still working on it. <laughs> I'll complete this by saying, I think it's a really great advertisement for working at Figma. Like the CTO cares enough and is technical enough still that he will go and build it competing tooling because what exists out there is not good enough. And if, if this is what they release in the public, imagine what they do internally. So that's a really good pitch. Yeah, it would definitely be exciting to work at Figma. That Just the, the way they bet on WebAssembly before a lot of other people did is also another testament to that. So I found this article online. We'll include the link in the show notes, but it's essentially an introduction to, to client-side front-end architecture. I have worked as a stint as a front-end architect, and I was just going back and collecting some more resources, and I'm trying to put together materials right up. And I, f I found this set of articles, and I thought it was like incredibly well done, good visualizations, nice explanations, really going deep into sort of concepts that you need to be familiar with if you're thinking about architecting a large application. And it's not just like at a small scale of, hey, what tools do I pick? But more thinking about large, our design patterns, uh, how it fits into our modern tooling. Anyway, this is one article among many, but I feel like it's really well done and I enjoyed it. So hopefully if you're interested in front-end architecture, web architecture stuff, then this will be interesting to you. Like it.
also props on the data visualizations there. Like it's so hard to, to create good graphics and, and I, I feel like you did a great job with this. So it's a very pretty website in general. Yeah. And it's a consistent brand for him. This is Khalil from Apollo and he does it for his talks as well. And I just think it's really nice. I actually want to ask him how he does that. Cause I need to up my visualization game. Just do it all on Excaladraw. That's what I do these days. <laughs> That's what I do too. But if everyone does it, then it's not special. You know what I mean? So True. it's not branded. Yeah. Okay. So my pick is Superbase. This is, I will declare upfront that I'm an investor in Superbase, but I'm a very, very, very small investor, like basically $35,000. But they are so far, you know, I've done some angel investing in the past year, uh, six companies so far. They are the by far and away, like the best at shipping and, and creating some momentum. And it's pretty obvious that they're going to be a winner. They are essentially an open source Firebase, which is the initial marketing. How it talks about how everyone has the, like the initial view and then the long-term vision. The initial marketing is that they're an open source Firebase. Uh, and everyone's like, what's wrong with Firebase? <laughs> that comes into this whole discussion of, okay, do you trust Google to keep things around? Do you trust Google's proprietary NoSQL Firebase? based data store, or do you trust Postgres more, which has been open source and in production for 40 years? So actually what Superbase's long-term vision is, is just extending all the superpowers of Postgres to regular front-end developers. And Postgres has a crap ton of stuff from like search to like geospatial record keeping and all that authentication to security, like all this stuff, like that is hard to use because you have to be a experienced SQL developer. They built a nice UI for it. And they let you provision it as a platform. So they take care of all the other stuff, like often storage, databases, and whatever else they provide. I think they're in the process of releasing workflows using a competitor solution to ours. So I'm trying to convince them to switch over to ours. But, but out of the sort of new Roku, which I call it like new Heroku, there are a bunch of startups that are like the new Heroku competitors. Uh, so I call these like new Rokus. So there's Render, there's Superbase. They, they all have some different pitches on these things. Uh, Superbase is not a hosting platform. So you still have to, you still need a different hosting platform, but they, they provide all the other backend stuff for you. And they've just been shipping really well. You can look in their blog for their month to month updates and they are shipping. I know for a fact, because I worked at Amplify at AWS, they are out shipping people that are 10 times their size and 10 times their funding. So there's, they got something going on that's pretty special. Yeah, for sure. They've been a, a big thing on my radar for a while. It, it's It's been a long time since I've seen a really solid, I don't know if you want to call it platform as a service or backend as a service. The problem tries to get tackled a lot, but there's been a few historical examples of services that like are done really well. And I think for a while, Firebase was pretty notable in this space, but I'm not sure that I would highly recommend that for someone new and getting started. But I really think the potential for what Superbase could be is rather broad and you can already do so much with it. It's just a well-designed product. Yeah. It's really exciting to see. So a random question, how did you get into investing in this? Did they have a uh, public seed or something or, or how did that come along? Friend of a friend. It, what part of b being so well-networked in tech is that you start actually having friends who are smarter than you who start, who start stuff. And this one came in from Thor from Stripe, who is a developer advocate there. And he was like, I, I just met these guys, Superbase, they're coming on YC. They were like the number one or number two most uh, upvoted Hacker News launch of that YC batch. And it was just like, they were obviously very smart. My main concern was just that, I don't know, there's been a lot of companies that like going up against Firebase and I was working at Amplify at the time. 
going up these big companies, what do you have that they don't? And it turns out that they can just ship a lot more without a lot of legacy assumptions. So actually, that's probably better. And yeah, how do you get the opportunity? Just uh, referrals. Just uh, say like you're open to investing. I have a Discord where we share deals. Um, so if anyone's interested in DevTools, angel investing, you can come in on the DevTools Discord. Literally just search it, you'll, you'll see it. And there's about four to five hundred of us just talking about DevTools and sharing deals and stuff. I think I have two opportunities that probably will be happening soon. I definitely think that it's more interesting than investing in NFTs. So that's my bar for whether or not you should throw your money on these things. So I think that about wraps it up for all of our tool tips and questions. Thanks a lot for coming on, Sean. This was an awesome conversation, a bit different than the other ones we've had here on DevTools FM. So thanks. Thanks for having me. This is great. I appreciate the opportunity and good luck. I, I, congrats on launching your podcast and keeping it going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a lot of work but it, it's pretty fun uh, okay well that's it for this week's episode of dev tools fm be sure to follow us on youtube and wherever you consume your podcasts thanks for listening